If you have your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew 23 with us today. Uh, we are in the uh, middle of a series that we've been going through this summer uh, called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Uh, we, and we go through this title because, not because Jesus made a mistake or uh, shouldn't have said certain things, but because they are challenging to us. Uh, they go against the grain uh, of who we are uh, and, and our brokenness and our fallenness. Uh, we've looked at a number of statements so far that Jesus has said. We began this series with Jesus saying to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Uh, really looking at this issue of trust, where we place our trust, where we place our faith, where we place our security. Jesus followed that up with love your enemies. Uh, we looked at the extent of the love that we are called to have, the forgiveness and grace that we are called to have, even for those who don't deserve it. Jesus, we looked at after that week, we saw him say, uh, hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your family, even your own life. Uh, and if you don't pick up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, that one was especially uh, tricky after looking at love your enemies, then going to hate your family. But Jesus wasn't talking about disdain for our loved ones, but rather the cost of discipleship, what it might cost us if we choose to follow him. And then last week we picked up with do not judge, looking at this kind of hypocritical or self-righteous judgment that we are often prone to and moving beyond that to this pursuit of restoration, of reconciliation in our relationships, even when it comes to calling uh, an erring brother or sister back into what God has called them to. And so all of these phrases, all of these statements can be challenging or possibly even offensive because they, Jesus says them and they demand a response from us. That if we want to be genuine followers of him, these statements can't simply be shrugged off and ignored. They demand a response from us. And today is much the same. Uh, the statement that Jesus brings before us today is, The greatest among you will be your servant, from Matthew 23, 11. Again, this is not a statement that sounds particularly offensive on the surface, but as we dive into the implications of what it looks like to serve as Jesus served, I think it will challenge us. Thinking through what it means to be uh, a servant, I couldn't help but think of who exemplifies servanthood more than moms, you know, our dear old moms. Good moms are servants at heart. I mean, the job kind of demands it, and as I've seen my wife, Kelsey, carry and care for very soon to be three children, you, ha you have to be a servant in that role. And I think especially so if your kids are sick. I, I remember as a kid, uh, I'd be puking, and my mom, who's not strong in the stomach, would be kind of trying to hold the bucket, be there for me, retching all the while, dry heaving, and, and i just be like, Mom, I, I got this. Uh, or she would say things like, Honey, I wish I could be in sick instead of you. And I would say, oh, mom, that is, that's so dumb, you know, like, <laughs> no, you don't, but I, I, I've had kids, I understand what she means, but it's reasons like this that I've included this statement, the greatest among you will be your servant, in things I wish Jesus never said. Because service is messy. To serve as Jesus served is to do things that you don't want to do. Uh, my alma mater, Ozark Christian College, describes themselves often as a Jesus school. And as a Jesus school, it is also a service school. Uh, the kind of theme verse of our college is, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And as a service school, of course, we are given opportunities to serve. I remember 
Uh, as a student, uh, every year we would host middle school uh, students uh, in our dorms for certain events that they would have, and, uh, and those occasions do get as weird as you would expect sometimes. Uh, I remember one occasion we were all getting ready for bed, one kid's just kind of sitting there in an office chair, finally like, okay, well, we're, we're, we're going to go to sleep now, and he says, oh, I don't sleep. I'm like, well, good night, <laughs> turn off the light, this service is weird. I remember another occasion, our dorm uh, was picked to be uh, the wait staff for a women's, uh, a ladies' conference. And, and ladies, I'll just say, uh, next time you go to a conference, be kind to your wait staff. I mean, they opened those doors, and it was like the running of the bulls as these ladies chased down their seats. You know how terrifying it is with a woman in an animal print cardigan chasing you, handbag of flying, you're running for her seat in there. I mean, service is messy. And because it's messy... It's these words, the greatest among you will be your servant, that can be challenging to us or offensive to our notion. We admire people who serve, certainly. I mean, uh, but it isn't the way that we think about getting ahead. By the world's standards, being the greatest means having people serve you, not the other way around. And so this message on service comes in the middle of a message that Jesus has been speaking against the religious leaders of his day. I mean, you would think that if anybody were to be, uh, you know, looked at as models of service, it would be the, the, the religious lead church people. I mean, minister means servant. A, a pastor is a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And yet Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders who are, are instead of making it easier to, for people to follow God. You know, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law were actually making it more difficult. They're putting unnecessary restrictions and hardships on the people. And I think it's while these practices, while they started with good intentions, these are the things that Jesus speaks against because they've been, become a burden into following God. Jesus says this way in Matthew 15, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so we see that Jesus' beef, his main issue with these religious leaders is while they look like models of service, They were really only interested in serving themselves. And so Jesus, because of that, gives us, I think, three truths this morning about what true servants do, what true servants look like. And the first thing that we see is that as servants, we lighten loads. There are two groups in particular that Jesus sets his sights on this morning. Like I said, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And if you've been in church long enough, if you've read the Gospels, you've probably heard of these guys before, and without even thinking about it, we tend to label and and think, well, well, these are the bad guys. But that's not how people of their day would have thought of them. For the Pharisees, this this term Pharisee comes from the root word that means separate. They were known for being holy and separate and set apart. And they proved regularly that they were, they were worthy of such a, a title. They prayed regularly. They were very conservative in their interpretation of Scripture. They were zealous for God's law. They wanted to do the things that God had called them to do. But their zeal had led them to kind of create this hedge, this, this barrier around the law that was very taxing on the people. And it started out, like I said, with good intentions. Uh, you know, if you have a, a toddler and you tell a toddler, don't t- touch something, what's the first thing they're going to do? You know, they're going to touch it. And a lot of people were doing the very same with God's law. And so they kind of created this barrier, this, this hedge to protect the law from being touched. A uh, perfect example of this, when Chandler, our oldest son, was uh, about three years old, um, he picked up the phrase, oh my gosh. 
Uh, and oh my gosh, it's not inherently bad, but we felt like it for a three-year-old, it was uh, too close to taking the Lord's name in vain. And so we kind of set this rule that we don't even say, oh my gosh. You know, he wasn't breaking God's law, but we didn't want him to come too close to saying, to taking God's name in vain by saying something even close to it. But the problem for the people was that this hedge made everything so restrictive that it was difficult to do anything without breaking their man-made rules. Then you have this other group, those were the Pharisees, then you have the teachers of the law. Some translations call them scribes. Because before printing presses, books were copied the only way you could by hand, painstakingly writing out every letter of every word. I mean, can you imagine writing the entire Old Testament by hand over and over again? But that's what these guys did. And before long, as you've written it over and over and over, you begin to memorize it. You begin to see connections. You begin to, to, to see these, these uh, ways that Scripture plays out and become kind of an expert in it. And so these scribes, because they knew Scripture so well, often became teachers and lawyers, uh, you know, disputing cases and arbiting on behalf of people. Now, I know that there are like 101 lawyer jokes out there for preachers, but I'll bypass those simply to say uh, that as these scribes ended up in, as experts of the law, they also became experts at breaking and exploiting that law, finding all of the loopholes. And so Jesus has this rebuke for them this morning in his message about service. Matthew 23, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus says you know, they have the authority of Moses. They, they sit in, in the, the place of teaching the law. But it doesn't mean that they should be admired as examples. They were experts at majoring in the minors and expected everyone else to follow suit. They had actually counted up in the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, that there were 613 commands from God. And on top of those, they created this hedge, this boundary, making it even more difficult to follow. For example, we know that in the Ten Commandments, God's law was to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, to, to set aside this day of rest from your work and to focus on God and worship. And so what that meant was that God wanted Israel to, to set aside this day that uh, instead of being laborious for them, was a day of rest where they could focus on what God had done for them. But then people like the Pharisees came along and said, well, we, we have to determine what work is. If we don't determine what work is, somebody might actually break that law and do some work. And so they begin to say things like, well, walking too far is considered work. And lighting or extinguishing a fire is considered work. You know, they came up with 39 categories of work. And so they put all of these restrictions on the people that rather than become a day of rest, it became a full day's work just not to do any work. And so Jesus says, you know, what's worse is that they create these restrictions is that they find loopholes out of them. Again, to use walking as an example, the day before many of these experts, these religious leaders, would walk five-eighths of a mile. That was determined to be the extent to which you could walk on the Sabbath. They would leave this dusty, dirty old sandal there. And so the next day on the Sabbath, they could walk five-eighths of a mile and say, look, here is my property, which is still part of my estate. And so I can go another five-eighths of a mile without being too far from what my home is. And it sounds silly to us. 
But imagine trying to live within such a system. It would be exhausting. Jesus says they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Compare that to what Jesus says about himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus came not as an overlord to put a crushing burden of rules and regulations upon people, but to show us a better way. And it's not a way without restrictions. There are still things that he calls us to do to follow him, but he recaptures the heart of God's commandment. That the extent of all of them, the purpose of all of them, was to draw us closer to him. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light because he shouldered the brunt of it when he carried it to the cross. And so as servants, when we seek to lighten loads, I think that leads us to ask things like, am I making it difficult for people to come to know Jesus? Am I putting up unnecessary obstacles in the way? Are people known more for what I'm against than what I'm for? Are we communicating that the gospel is actually good news, or is it the system of, of behavioral modification that they have to go through in order to follow Jesus? As servants, do we lighten loads? Secondly, we see as servants, we don't seek recognition. There's this potential danger to service that we know about that Jesus warns us against. It's easy to serve as a means of self-promotion. It's easy to look servant-hearted while in reality being very self-centered. Jesus says this way, verse 5. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Jesus says everything they do is done for people to see. That they seek recognition. He says they make their phylacteries wide, and maybe with the most recent Jurassic Park, you think, phylactery, that's my favorite dinosaur. But that's not what this is here. Uh, Jesus is talking about this, this little box that they would put on their, their heads and their arms that, to, to seek recognition for their religious duty. This little leather box they would wear on their foreheads or wrists that contained these scrolls of Scripture. And they would wear it about in the marketplaces, wear them all the time, and, and, and make them nice and extra big, and as if to proclaim, you know, I love the law, I obey the law, I'm a good person, look at me. Or they would make sure their prayer tassels hung off their sleeves and their robes extra long so people could really see that they were the, the real deal. They would seek recognition by jockeying for position. They wanted the best seats at the table right next to the host. They wanted to be in the front row of the synagogue so people could take notice of their perfect attendance. They sought recognition through their titles and, and their, their names, the rabbi and father, things that people called them. And we can look at all of these areas and think, well, that might have been real issues and struggles back in the day, but it's kind of a moot point now. I'm not wearing a Bible box on my head. I'm not demanding that people call me rabbi. But if you really think about it, I think it can be tempting to use our service as a means of drawing attention to ourselves. But I think the question that we need to ask when it comes to keeping ourselves in check in this way is, 
Am I trying to be the sun or am I trying to be the moon? As you think about it, there are really two lights that kind of govern our existence, the sun and the moon, and only one of those is the source of light. The other simply reflects it. So when we give and serve and speak and pray, are, are we doing that to shine light for ourselves, to shine glory from ourselves, or are we doing it to reflect the glory of God? Are we like the sun trying to shine forth ourselves or like the moon reflecting who God is? The light of the moon is only glorious because the light of the sun is glorious. And so as servants, we don't seek recognition. We seek to reflect our Father. Thirdly and finally, we see as servants, we model our Master. Instead of seeking others' approval, Jesus offers us a better motive to serve, which is to model Him. Here comes that never phrase, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I think this is where that wish I never, that Jesus never said kind of part comes into play. Because as, we, as much as we might serve, it, it goes against the grain of what we think is the path to greatness. I mean, we, we love that people serve as a great place to start. You know, we love the rags, the riches story of the janitor who, who serves and becomes a CEO, but the CEO who becomes a janitor is a totally different story. But then we see Jesus. And the night before he died, you, you would expect him, it would be entirely appropriate for him to be grasping for glory. But instead he takes off his outer robe, and he wraps himself in a towel, and he washes his disciples' feet. John 13, too, tells the, how the event progresses. It says, the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he, be, he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Some of this kind of gets lost in translation for us, what Jesus is doing here. But Jesus is doing the job that is reserved for the lowest of the low, that if you had a Gentile slave, that was his job. And we get this, you know, feet are smelly and feet are hairy and cracked and crusty and callous, and, and that's just the ladies' feet. Don't get me started on men's feet, you know. This, this, is, this is scrubbing toilets. This is scooping up all the dog poop out of the backyard. This is the job that no one wanted to do. Certainly not something you expect the host of the meal to do, let alone the God of the universe. But then Jesus demonstrates that true leadership is in service, that true power is in selflessness. Verse 12 continues, When he had washed, finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Anytime we approach the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, I think there's a common response or maybe even a temptation. 
because it'd be fairly easy to, to trot out several basins and pitchers of water and, and wash each other's feet this morning as an example of service to each other. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. But I think here's the thing about that. that for the most part, as nasty as feet are, our feet are pretty clean. They're nicely pedicured, they're shielded by socks and shoes, and while feet aren't many people's favorite part of the body, aside from a little bit of discomfort, washing someone's feet today isn't a huge inconvenience. And so I think the reason I call it a temptation is because we could wash each other's feet, endure our 30 seconds of awkwardness, and go home feeling good about the ways that we've served. That's not really the point. What Jesus is doing in this passage for his disciples is a service so demeaning and personal that there's nothing they could do to pay him back. Nothing they could do to square up. So what I would rather do is encourage you this week to, in an effort to imitate Jesus as a display of true kingdom power, to, to do something for someone who can't pay you back. Maybe it's something you do for your kids or your spouse, a sacrifice you make to serve them. Maybe you buy lunch for a coworker or a neighbor that you don't get along with. Maybe you mow the lawn for the person down the street that's routinely disrespectful. Maybe you watch a young couple's kids so they can go on a date to strengthen their relationship. Whenever I think about this, I think of uh, one of my mentors, Mark Christian, and I've told this story over the years in different ways. But when I was interning with him uh, right out of college, um, he was at a church that was a couple thousand at the time, big church. And on a Wednesday night, they had the elders' meetings, so I would go to those, and uh, they would have their Wednesday night, you know, studies finishing up. And so a little kid, about seven years old, came running down the halls, and, and he stopped him. And he, he came, you know, he said, how's, how's your mom doing? You know, and, and talked to him about baseball, and then he noticed his shoe was untied. And he got down on one knee, and he put that kid's shoe right on his thigh, and he tied his shoes. I thought, you're messing up your khakis, man. <laughs> but I recognized in that moment that he was doing something for someone that couldn't pay him back. And he could have, as a you know, mega church pastor, you know, told the kids, stop running, stop running in the halls, you know, you know, quit doing that. But instead, he took a moment to identify with him and connect with him and serve him in such a way that has kind of molded me and shaped me into the kind of leader that I aspire to be. You see, this wasn't just a position that Jesus took in his life. It was also the position that he took in his death. That Jesus didn't cling to power and life and, 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 and splendor, but he submitted himself to his Father's will and was obedient to death. He suffered, he was humiliated, he was scorned and put on display as a failed king. In the cross, we see that there is suffering. In the cross, there is death, but in the cross, there is also victory. In the cross, there is exaltation and glory because the cross, we know, didn't hold the final say. So my encouragement to us this week is that rather than imitating the ways of the world, I want, to us, I want us to shoulder the condition of the cross and live a life not to be served, but to serve as we model our master. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation uh, and this is an opportunity that we always have to kind of dedicate ourselves to God or to maybe turn our lives over to Him. But I want this morning to be beyond just those things, in, in addition to those things. 
an opportunity for us to truly think and reflect on what it means to accept a life not just of salvation, but a life of service and response to that. A life that prompts us to realize that in the shadow of the cross, the commission, the call, the challenge is to serve. Pray about that. Father God, we are grateful that you are a good and loving God. God, it's often said that even if you weren't good, you would still be God, and so we are glad that you are good. We are glad that in Jesus you showed who you are, the very character of, of who you are as a servant. That you were the God of the universe, and yet you look upon us, and you desire to serve us in ways that are for our good. Not because we twist your arm and, and do things and worship to you, but we worship you because of those things. That because of your goodness in your heart, that you help to, to help us to see what it means to be served. God, I pray that as we adopt the position of servants, that we would do so not you know, for our own gain, not so that we can look good, but to model who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We look to model the cross and see what Jesus did, the extent to which he would go to serve us, that we might have salvation. And my prayer is that we would not just lavish that salvation and, and rest in it, sit back in it and enjoy it, but that it would challenge us to serve as you have served. God, I pray that you would uh, be with us this week through your spirit, uh, empowering us and emboldening us, challenging us, encouraging us to find ways to serve others, even when they can't pay us back, especially when they can't pay us back. To do things like Jesus did, so that others might see you and see your character, see your heart as a God who serves and a God who loves. God, we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.